Can we bring it in and shall we get started? Quite a storm come through this morning. Is that for everybody? Man, it came to our place, man. Quite a thing. All righty. Well, um, you can see the title of where we're headed today. I'm going to teach for a couple weeks and then off a couple weeks and then uh, I may come back. What we're going to do for a number of weeks is um, look at a number of uh, narratives of how Jesus interacted with people. His, uh, as it said, Jesus's way of personal evangelism. So we're going to look at little, you know, snippets of different different stories of different people, and try to draw out some observations from the folks. So, before we begin, let me pray. Get our brains and our hearts tuned up. Lord, I thank you this morning for your word, and for this rich um, reality of you, and how you've made yourself known in our lives individually, it's hard to even comprehend that you have. And then you give us this great history of the reality of how you interacted with people, and I pray that it would stir us, it would move us, it would give us insight, it would give us wisdom, it would give us actual skill that you demonstrated for your apostles, and now you've given it to us, that we could go to a world and communicate with people. So thank you for this morning, and we look forward to where you'll take us, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, Jesus' way of personal evangelism. Again, I don't know. I, I had to call the guys. We, we interacted quite a bit about this this week. I don't know how many weeks this will take us to kind of go through Jesus' a number of narratives because I don't know how, anyway, I don't know how much we'll get through this morning. We'll try to get through a couple and then over, over the weeks maybe, uh, you know, four, five, six more. So um, one of the things I wanted to tell you is um, we're going to try to, we need to get permission, but I have a really fascinating chart that came from a, class, evangelism class taught in uh, Mid at Midwest Baptist, and we need permission, and if we can get permission, we'll put it on the website, and then, you know, you guys can potentially get a copy of it, but it's an analytical study. It's really fascinating. I mean, you can't see it from back there, but it's this incredible chart of 55 interactions, personal evangelism interactions, not preaching, not events kind of things, but interactions with people, um, John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles, and he did an analysis of you know, what was the contact like? What did he talk about? Uh, you know, what was the result? What happened? And it's really a fascinating study. And um, so if we can, if we can we, we're going to try to put that on the website at, at some point. But I, I drew a few um, small, just little snippets from this that I thought it was fascinating. Um, so Jesus had, in, in, uh, documented in our Gospels, 36 encounters with people individually. We think of individual evangelism. Obviously, he was preaching and teaching to masses, but... Only four of those, of 36, he knew prior to having contact with them. So it was just, you could call it a cold contact. First time he had ever engaged them. Um, the initiation is interesting. So Jesus initiated 11 of those 36 times, but 22 of those contacts were people coming to him. So he took initiative, but at the same time, the majority were people who saw him, heard him, did something, and said, I want to I talk to you. I want to communicate with you. I just think it's an interesting insight, right? And then you see there, there's three judicial. In other words, when he was caught up in the court situation, he was able to use that as communicating with people. Um, Fourteen of those 36 had, like, heart questions. You know, they were wrestling in their souls, you know, with sin and life. Um, the others all had some kind of physical or familial need, meaning, like, you know, I have a child that needs you you know, some infirmity, something that they went to Jesus and said, could you come here? Could you help me? And so that's an interesting 
again, insight. I don't know how to draw all that, what to do with all of that, other than, like, Jesus pursued real needs of people. And in that, he used that as evangelistic avenue to communicate with people. Um, all of his encounters, it's interesting, are all about the person of Jesus. We'll see that this morning, too. You'll see that throughout here. So I found it interesting because here we spent these weeks um, talking about kind of the theological grid of thinking through what is the gospel, right? God, man, Christ, and we need to respond to God. And yet, when you look at all these encounters with Jesus, while he'll touch on different aspects of that, it's not a theological proposition he's bringing to them generally. It's like, I'm here. Respond to me. It's all about the person of Jesus. You'll see that as we look at this morning. Um, The response, another thing is interesting. The response. um, The response wasn't pray... I hate to, I'm not trying to be trite with this, but um, was it pray a prayer? It wasn't you need to do this thing. It was like this response that in a sense sort of looks like obedience. It was out of the flow of their heart. You know, they just started following him or they had to go back and tell others that they had this encounter with Jesus or they bowed in worship. The response that you see with these people is not, oh, I agree with what you're saying. There was something in their very makeup in their life that they responded to. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? It's like you see that over and over and over. So it wasn't like, do you agree with this? I agree with this. I raised my hand and agree. It wasn't like that. They just started following him. They just obeyed him. Really interesting. Um, And then another one, which is a whole issue in our history of evangelism, particularly in the West, is there was virtually no follow-up. He would share with them, they'd have an encounter with him, and he'd say, even Mark 5, you know, I'll follow you, the demoniacs, says, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go. And he says, no, you just go back and tell your people what God's done for you. It was like they encountered Jesus, and he that began that good work, he knew he would complete it. Remember the Samaritan woman, the woman uh, at the well? Same sort of thing. She went back and told everybody in town what had happened. And so that's another whole discussion, but it, there's virtually none of this um, the follow-up, it was like when they encountered him, they knew they encountered him. And he sent them on their way. So, those are just some interesting insights that came from this larger analysis. So what I want to do this morning now is we're going to go and look at a handful of passages, and if you just open your Bibles with me, and I'm just going to kind of walk through it with you and just help us to see some, uh, try to draw out some um, key things uh, that we see in the text. And if you go to John chapter 1, and I think I'll read this, and then we'll come back, okay? So, um, I have listed there 29 through 51. So, uh, this is early on. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him. This is John the Baptist. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he who, um, on behalf of whom I've said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now, so it's been John the Baptist, right? He's been baptizing. He's speaking. Now look what happens. So verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. 
And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to him, What do you seek? Now notice again, I, I think what I'll do is instead of reading the end and coming back, we'll just kind of work our way through it for the sake of time. But these are two disciples of John. So these guys uh, tend to be kind of like trades guys. They're not big theologians. They're not full-time ministry kind of guys. But they've been following John, which means a number of things. First of all, they have a spiritual hunger, right? Another thing, uh, they've repented. They've seen their sin, and they've been baptized with this baptism of repentance that John was giving. Further, um, they're Jewish men, and so they know, you'll see here in a moment more, um, they understand the Jewish promises of a Messiah. Because they literally go on here, and the two disciples heard John say this, and what did they do? They followed Jesus. Really key. They started following him. Jesus turned and saw them and said to them, what do you seek? What are you looking for? And you'll notice they said to him, rabbi, which means teacher, very important, where are you staying? Okay. So what are they seeking? They're seeking truth. They're seeking something about this one Jesus who has something. He's a teacher. He has something they need, and they know it. And so they follow him. Where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. He doesn't really fully answer their question. He says, just come. You follow me, and you'll, you'll get an answer to your questions. Are you willing to follow me? And so look what it says. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the 10th hour. They spent the whole day with him. They didn't have their, answers, their uh, uh, questions answered yet. They just said, this is a teacher. There's something about him. Um, we're going to follow him. And they made that commitment to do that. One of the two heard John, uh, excuse me, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Okay? Clue, okay? We know these are Jewish guys, but they're looking for the Messiah. And what's his first natural reaction? To go to somebody he loves, one of his family, and say, I found something. We think we've discovered something. We think we're on this. This is real. You need to come. See? Natural reaction again. Then he goes on. So um, we found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, or Cephas, which translated means Peter. It's the idea of rock. Um, there's a sense there, really. Think of that even. He's giving this affirmation, this dignity to Peter. He, he recognizes who he is, and he says, You're going to be a rock. I'm going to call you the Imagine Jesus saying that to you. If you went up to Jesus today and says, I see something in you, and you're going to be, what a great statement. So you go further here then. The next day, he purposed to go to Galilee, which is another interesting insight. He purposed, Jesus is on a mission. He knows exactly what he's doing. He found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Once again, we see the same thing, right? Come follow me. Okay. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. See the dynamic again? This guy sees something. There's something going on. I need to go tell people I know. I need to go tell people I love, people I care about. Something going on. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. 
See the same thing again? You come check it out. You come find out. He told us to follow him. He's going to tell us stuff. You come. It's kind of fun, isn't it? And so Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and look what he does. Dignity again. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael, I know you, and you're an incredibly good man. I know you. Look what he says. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. The journey's just beginning. You're being called into something that's a whole lot bigger than you ever thought. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open, the angels of God descending and descending on the Son of Man. There's a sense there when think about that. He's calling them to himself, but in a sense he's calling them to himself for something even greater, this larger mission. You think you saw something now? This is awesome. Yeah, but you haven't begun to see what's going to unfold yet. Isn't that great? And so there's this interaction with these people. I'm looking for my little deal here. And what I want to do is I want to just, oh, I'll tell you what, let's, let's do this contrast real quick. It's really simple. Drop back to Matthew with me, um, chapter 8. And as we look at this uh, contrast or comparison, I, and again, something you guys, I'm sure, are quite familiar with. Um, okay, drop down here to about uh, 19 of Matthew. Then a scribe came, okay, this is, a, you could call it a lawyer, somebody who knew the law. Chapter 8 of Matthew 19. And said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air, or, or the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another his disciple said to him, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. And so, just simply, and you'll see that narrative in a few of the places in the Gospels, they they said, well, I kind of want to follow you, but I have this thing to do first, right? That was the issue. The others said, they dropped everything and said, we're going to go hang out with this guy for the day because he has something. You see that? These are religious seekers. The other guys are asking questions, but not, not really quite ready to follow. So here's some interesting observations that you can draw from this. That's simply what we're doing today. First of all, he, Jesus focused on the spiritually hungry, Okay. And we're, on a real sense, there's no reason for debate. A lot of times when we think of our culture and we think of apologetics and some of these discussions, and, you know, and I get into a number of those kinds of discussions, actually, Jesus was after the spiritually hungry. We're looking for the spiritually hungry. There's a, a time and a place to do things and talk to people, even do public things, as we'll see. Jesus did that. But the goal, really, at the end of the day, is you're looking for spiritually hungry people. You're going to talk to 100 people. It's an old statement. I don't know if I said it in here already. Um, you go out there and, and, you, and you begin to talk the truth with people, and Jesus' sheep will lift their heads. The rest will go on eating grass. I'm always looking for those who want to lift their heads. Spiritually hungry, that's what Jesus went to. Um, there was always this reaching winning disciples leads to reaching others. You see this, this progression. This, when there's something real happening in somebody, there's a natural tendency. They want to tell those that they love. And Jesus always had that in mind. It's an interesting observation. We should have that in mind. We should be looking at people and through people to their people. It should be a natural thing. Man, if that, and I think this a lot. I don't know if you ever think about this. I'll see celebrities or people. I think, 
wonder what God would do if that guy came to Christ, if that gal came to Christ. Not because they're a celebrity, but because of what they represent. It's a doorway to a whole group of people. And you see that unfolding throughout the scriptures. Natural relationships. Natural relationships is an observation, right? There's something about dealing with families and people and neighborhoods and communities of people who know each other. I know I, they tell me it's a little more disjointed now on the campuses. Some of you younger guys may be familiar with this, but a number of years ago when, when I was more your guys' age, which is a number of years ago, but it was <laughs> yeah. But it was common, really, like on a campus. A campus strategy would be, say, let's look at a whole dorm floor. And it would be somebody that would come to faith in Christ on that dorm floor. And then they'd say, hey, what would it look like for you to think about reaching your entire dorm floor? And uh, there's something about that. Ball teams, places of work, these kinds of things, these natural relationships is an interesting observation. This is, I was mentioning earlier, public testimony leads to finding hungry people. So there's something about Jesus walking there. There's something about John speaking. There's something about, if you will, quote, unquote, doing events, different things. And again, it's about looking for hungry people. And there's something about public testimony, publicly speaking about something. And again, I could use the idea of apologetics, that what it does is it draws people out. It draws people out that potentially are Jesus to sheep. Make sense? Another one, uh, come check it out. More truth will be revealed. You're not going to know everything right now. But are you really curious about this? Come follow. There's something about this come follow that you don't, need, you don't need to give everybody everything at the same time and place. It's like, no, there's more. And there's this drawing, and you're looking for people who are being drawn and people who are interested. The personal value of people, gifts, dignity. You see that with Peter. You see it with Nathaniel. There's something about acknowledging a people, okay, that, that unbelieving person acknowledging, say, I can see this is an important issue for you. Justice is important. I, I think I mentioned that in the Sunday school class. You know, a lot of people today think about justice. It's really interesting. And again, we would say, okay, they're going down the wrong way. They have different standards. But they actually are thinking about justice. And to infer, affir, uh, affirm that in a conversation with people opens up huge doors. I'm glad you're interested in, in, in justice, that you should be concerned about that. You should be concerned about slavery. You should be concerned about these things. But where does that lead you? You see how that's a doorway to go somewhere? And it's affirming stuff, stuff in people. Because God's fingerprints are all over everything. And, this, again, this is ideas. It's a call to follow a person. Okay? And, again, in our, maybe it's our world, maybe it's our Western culture, uh, not just this church, but we can sort of get hung up, I think, and some of you know me, like um, in the sense of theology, we talk in this church a lot about truth, the word of God. Absolutely, you never deviate from that. But at the end of the day, it actually is a, an individual human, as it is true of all of you, who have an encounter with the living Christ, not an encounter with propositions. Propositions are part of that, but it's actually an encounter with the living God. That's what Jesus was calling people to. Come, come to me. Come hang out with me. Further then, it's a call to this victorious world mission. He gives them a glimpse. This is something a whole lot bigger than just you. And we could have a whole discussion about that, but it has to do with the church. It has to do with when somebody comes to Christ, there is a sense, right, that it's this individual encounter with God. But what they're walking through a doorway to is an entire world, eternal life. It's an entire community of people. It's a movement, the church doing something. It really is. You're being invited into something much bigger than yourself, right? So those are some interesting observations that we can draw from this when we think about Jesus encountering individuals. 
So let's go to another one now. This is a little bit, this is the encounter with Nicodemus. Then we'll look at the rich young ruler as a contrast. If you turn with me back to John, and let's work, th- let's th- work through with this one. It is interesting, very interesting, really. Um, yeah, 223. So when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, okay, Passover, religious time, during the feast, many believed in his name, uh, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not uh, entrusting himself to them, Excuse me. For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. Okay? Man of the Pharisees. I want you to um, consider this. This is a highly respected man. I don't know if you ever thought about this. I was looking at some notes on this. I mean, he was literally um, one of 70 top religious leaders. So you have to think about that. You think in our culture, you think the top celebrity pastors, the top religious people that you think of, you know, from all sorts of walks of life. And he's one of the 70s, very successful. He's very respected. He's a ruler of the Jews, as it says. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. Okay, and there's a lot of discussion. There's nothing more in our text other than he came at night. Was he trying to go undetected? Did he not want the Jews to know that he was coming to Jesus? As sometimes we have that suspicion. Uh, you know, we really don't know. Maybe he's just really busy and it's the only time to do it. I mean, I read that in a commentary. We really don't know. But he'd certainly, you have to wonder, right? Because he is this Jewish leader. And we'll see as this unfolds, there's a progression in his life that's fascinating, okay? So he comes, and the first thing you'll notice, he says, Rabbi. Rabbi, okay, teacher, I'm submitting to your teaching. I, I, you have something to say. Once again, he's a religious leader, but there's something in Nicodemus that's actually seeking something. That's the thing I want you to catch. So, Rabbi, we know that you have from, from, came from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You see how he recognizes something going on? Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this is interesting because notice Jesus' response. There's two or three parts of this. Um, you know, in Jesus, there's no partiality, no respecter of persons. And yet, he gives people their dignity and their place, but he doesn't really respond as, oh, you're this great leader at this point. He simply says, and he jumps right in, he jumps right past all the credentials. He drops right past all of the, the superfluous kind of stuff. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus just dot, takes a deep jump right in the deep end of the pool right now, right? And he bypasses the law. He bypasses, he doesn't talk anything about the Old Testament law. He doesn't talk about anything at this point of, uh, you know, sacrifices of priests. He jumps right past it all. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Okay, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. It's one of the only places in Scripture he talks about this new birth. See, he jumps right past the law, right past where Nicodemus was at with all his religious ideas that he needed to somehow 
you know, earn God's favor, do the right thing, which would have been very Jewish. I mean, it comes from the Old Testament, much of it, right? But he goes right past and says, there's something else you actually really need. You need to have a new birth. There has to have something has to happen within you. And then he goes here and he says, the wind blows um, where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So everyone who is born of the spirit. Now that's interesting because when he refers to that, when Jesus does this, the word used there for wind and spirit is the same Old Testament word for the Holy Spirit. That's why he equates it. We read it in our English, right? Uh, know where it comes from and where it's going. So it is everyone who's born of the Spirit. He's equating this wind to the Holy Spirit. And as a theologian, a biblical scholar of the Old Testament, Nicodemus knows exactly what he's talking about. I mean, that would just boom. Which, when we get to observations, maybe we'll pick up on that more. But just think about this. He's going into um, Nicodemus's knowledge base, I guess is how I would say that. And he's using something that Nicodemus would fully understand when he uses this analogy of wind and spirit. So he uses this common analogy. And then he goes on further. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? So he just got to insane. Wait a minute. This wind is like the Holy Spirit, man. And you don't know how this thing works, but this is what we're talking about. And then um, he said, if we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept their testimony, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one ascended into the heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now look what he does to this, think about it, Jewish leader. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So here's this Jewish leader, fully probably teaches this in synagogue, right? Numbers 21, the serpent on the staff. They had this disease. There was no way that they were going to be cured unless they looked at that thing and pleaded for God's mercy. Didn't jump through any hoops. It wasn't a bunch of theological propositions. It was literally a cry out for God's mercy. And he puts that right before Nicodemus. This is what it is. It's about the person of Jesus. It's about mercy. It's about grace. And then he goes on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See how he points it right back to himself? It's about the person of Jesus. It's about, and he's, he's in the context of Nicodemus, a religious leader who understands Moses, who understood this serpent, who understood the spirit. And he's speaking his language, if you will, if you could say it that way. For God did not send the Son in the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It's all about mercy and grace. He who believes in him is not judged. For he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is a judgment. The light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Here's one of our points of the gospel, right? Sin. He's, he's addressing it. For everyone who does evil hates the light and, um, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Notice here it's interesting. Okay, So he says all these wonderful things about himself. He, he points out sin. He points out that this is what really comes out of you. You see this. You stand under judgment. And yet, at least in this narrative, we don't see any further response. He doesn't say, now you need to respond. You need to 
turn from your sin and trust me. We see that in a lot of places, but he doesn't do that. Jesus just says this to him, and then the narrative stops. But it's interesting then, as we go through the scriptures, look with me at a couple others. Look at John chapter 7. John chapter 7, later on, even in the true chronology, the Bible's not always perfectly chronological, that's not always the point of it, but the Gospels aren't. But look at this. This is um, when there's this conflict in 7. Uh, no one of the rulers of Pharisees, I'm looking at verse like 48. There's this conversation with the Pharisees about Jesus. 48, no one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? Okay, so there's this question. None of us, none of us religious leaders believe in him. But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Notice verse 50. Nicodemus, you know, the one that came to Jesus at night, came to him before, said to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is, uh, is doing, does it? They answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? You see, like he's saying something that's like pro-Jesus just a little bit. Like, come on, you guys. And they're like, you're not on his side too, are you? Okay? And at this point, we don't know. But it seems like there's this leaning of Nicodemus towards Jesus, right? And of course, then if you go to John 19... This wonderful passage, John 19, 39, and 40. This is caring for Jesus' body after the, after the crucifixion. Okay? 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, there's a secret one, right? Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Look at verse 19. Nicodemus shows back up who had first come to him by night. John says that every time in the narrative. And you know the one that kind of came at night? He brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 100 pounds weight, and so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which one had yet been laid. Here's the key about Nicodemus. This was, this was Passover, remember? He's a religious leader. He's now defiled for the Passover because he's just touched the dead body. He is publicly, if you will, making a very clear statement publicly that I can't even participate in the Jewish rules, Jewish laws, because of my involvement with this man, Jesus. It clearly looks like he's converted. He put it all on the line, his entire career, all of his beliefs, and everybody's looking at him going, what is this guy doing? Isn't that interesting? So while we see in the beginning of the narrative, there's, we don't know the response. When we watch what unfolds, it's almost like he's kind of getting it with Jesus. And then later on, he's kind of leaning toward Jesus. And by the end of the story of John, he's really literally surrendering his entire position and career for the sake of Jesus. Isn't that great? It's just really cool. So um, one other contrast then, if you turn with me to um, Luke 18... Um, Luke 18 is another uh, similar to what we read earlier with Matthew but look at this um, Luke, Luke 18 the rich young ruler a ruler questioned him saying good teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus said to him why do you call me good no one is good except God alone this is that same thing we read earlier but this has uh, got a little more to it you know the commandments do not commit adultery do not murder do not steal do not bear false witness honor your father and mother 
And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And then, of course, Jesus said, look, uh, looked at him and said, how hard it is for those um, who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. That just quick comparison compared to this uh, religious leader, Nicodemus, you'll see here. Um, there's a self-righteousness. There's a moral respectability to him. First of all, I'm good. Don't you see? I obey the law. I'm good. And then uh, he's an ethical legalist, you could think of it that way. But the thing is, he doesn't understand grace yet. He doesn't understand his need for grace because he's propped himself up in the sense of, hey, I've obeyed the law. I'm a good guy. I'm one of the good people. And you can find that even in our culture. If you go to most people and say, are people basically good or basically bad? Most everybody's going to go, well, basically good. And then if you ask that individual, they'll say they're basically good. You know? You go to the jail and every guy in that room is comparing himself to somebody else he knows in jail that's a whole lot worse. That's what everybody does. We all do that. We all think that we're kind of the standard. Well, this, is, this, this was this rich guy's problem, right? Another thing that Jesus does here, though, that's interesting, is he does appeal to Scripture, which is an inter another interesting conversation that we'll look at in various observations. But um, the, this, this lawyer, this, this ruler, this, this uh, you know, uh, rich young man, as we call him, he knew the law, and so Jesus appeals to the law. There's a place to appeal to the law. And, and that's an interesting discussion because he respected the law, he, re, he knew the Bible, and Jesus used the Bible. What do you do with somebody who doesn't even know the Bible? I think we still use it, but there's something about the way he uses this because this man has some conviction about the law. But he misunderstands it. He misunderstands where it leads. Uh, and again, it's this comparing to others. And the other thing you'll see here that's in contrast to everything else we've seen so far is that obedience is a prerequisite. Obedience is a prerequisite. It's like, no, there's something about actually doing this, actually responding, that demonstrates the heart of a person. That's why early on when Jesus said, come follow me, right? We read a little bit earlier. Were they really going to follow? Were they actually going to follow does that make sense? And so there's something about this, a bit of obedience, even if it's a small step, that looks like it opens the door for something further and further and further. So in these couple of narratives that we ran through real quickly, again, there's some observations. Um, sometimes you'll see this. This self-righteousness is a moral respectability. You can see this in people. They're good people. They're the good politician in town. They're the good person. They're the good citizen. They're the, you know... Um, you know, I watch the right news station, or whatever it is. You know, you guys can conjecture on it. Moral respectability, it's a self-righteousness. And you can see it in people. See it in ourselves, too, right? But, you know, my point, you look for that. You see that, huh? They're basing their life on law. And they think they got it pretty much figured out. And once again, the religious seeking, it's interesting. Religious people in general, seeking people. I don't know if you've thought about that. Like, like... Sometimes we, we would call it pre-evangelism, meaning you're looking for somebody who there's certain pieces already in their life. There's something going on there. J.D. and I were talking earlier. C.S. Lewis was like that. There were these things that he was wrestling with before he was a Christian. I see this honestly. I see this a lot, and I would, if I could just be bold to say it, would be, I'd say Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholics got a lot of pieces of the puzzle. 
right? They do. A lot easier to talk to a Roman Catholic about some things sometimes. I have a lot more in common. I have a lot more turf that I can get to than a person who's completely removed from that. You know another one? Muslims. In Islam. They got a lot of pieces. In the, they got a lot of pieces sitting there on the table. They're religious people. And, and you can, in those people, you can find seeking people because they have all those things in place. I had another one I was thinking of. It's a, it's a, a song that's out there. But it's some guys writing this song. And I wouldn't want to show it in here. I was talking to J.D. about it because he's seen it too before. Um, I won't even mention the guy. But you can find it on YouTube. It's interesting. But he has this lyrics. It's kind of this rap thing. He says, I need a short drink or a long prayer. I've been sober, but I don't care. I'm so scared of my own self. I get no help, and, there's no, and that's not fair. So don't go there. I've been hell and back. I've, I've, I've got scorched hair in this Gucci cap. i got empty bottles and a million follows. He gets followed quite a bit in his music. I regret, I regret swallowing the antivan. And then he goes on and says, let's be real. I resent the way I feel. I pretend it's cool, but I miss getting drunk, and I'm angry that God doesn't help me when I kneel. I said my prayers, and I got clean, but things got worse. I quit doing drugs, and I pleaded with Jesus to save me, but he didn't hear my words. He goes on and says, this just doesn't work. It hurts. I went to church. Now I need liquid courage. Whiskey in my glass. I take the knives out of my back to stir it. I go to hell and back, then show you burns to prove it. I need shots or God to gain the strength I need. I'm just a person. I pray on my way to the liquor store that they lock the doors. Because I'll lay in my grave if the whiskey pours like it did before. I'm scared. I send out a prayer. Can anybody hear me? Is anybody there? Because honestly, it hurts, and every day is worse. I keep buying whiskey when all I need is church. I keep talking to God, but he doesn't hear me. And my demons are there, always listening. I got lost in the dark, drowning in my whiskey. I went in so far, you'd say, uh, you say you miss me. I'm a ship in a bottle, so say goodbye at the shore. Break the glass and you'll find me. I'm not who I was before. Close my eyes in the darkness and I hold on through the storm. I'm a wreck in a bottle. I wasn't built for a war. These church pews, bright lights, whiskey glasses, bottles of booze, make short days to long nights. The bottle, the Bible didn't know what to choose. Amazing lyrics. I pray on my way to the liquor store that they lock the doors because I'll, I'll lay in my grave. And he goes through the course. He goes, I can't read, but the Bible's still with me. My eyes can't see from the bottles of whiskey. I don't believe anybody will miss me, and I'm on my knees telling me, God, you are listening. I pray on the way to the liquor store because I'll lay in my grave. If the whiskey pours like it did before, I'm scared. I send out a prayer. Can anybody hear me? Is anybody there? Because honestly, it hurts, and every day is worse. I keep buying whiskey when all I need is church. Now, if you were to watch that, that guy is completely covered with tattoos all over his face. He totally looks like from a different world that none of us usually gravitate in, and you wonder what's going on inside his mind. I'm not saying he's a Christian. Not at all. I'm just saying he's got pieces of a puzzle, and he's wrestling with life. And, man, when, every time I see it, I just, get, like, I just want to sit down and talk to the guy. I'd love to talk to him and see what's going on. So, um, seekers, religious seekers, people who are religious looking for something, right? So let's go on here. So there's something about that. Um, looking for something real. There's something about that person that they're looking for something real. Maybe they've had a stagnant, boxy religiosity of some sort. They went through the motions, they went through the hoops, and it's empty, right? And this is where 
This is where, and we'll get to it in weeks to come, where testimony comes in. When somebody says, you know, I've actually had an encounter with a living God, with a real person. This is where the church comes in, a whole group of people who say, there's something really real going on here. We're not just jumping through hoops and checking off boxes. There's something real going on here. That's attractive to religious people. Because if they're really looking, again, we're talking about somebody who's really looking, and they're trying to find it in religion, they're looking. So um, a young guy that I travel a lot with, he was here uh, visiting around the church the last week or so. <clears throat> He'll be coming back working on a PhD at Midwest. His name's Sam Parada. But up in North Dakota State University, he and another friend of mine, Brandon, would regularly go to the campus and they'd sit on a table in the union and put a big sign up where Christians ask us anything. And they said the majority of people who came and asked them questions were international students, mostly Muslims. They're looking. They've come here to the U.S. out from underneath that umbrella that they've had, uh, umbrella, you know, claws that have been on them, and they have a freedom to actually look into other things now. And they're asking questions. Very interesting. They, they're, they're told in the Quran to read the Injil. You know what the Injil is? The Gospels. I got a stack of them at my house. The Injil, the Gospels. They want to read the Gospels. I've given them to Muslims all over this community. They don't have access to them. But they want to read it because they were told to read it. Isn't that interesting? Seekers, religious seekers, are looking for something real. Reference to Scripture. There's time to reference Scripture with religious people and show them. If they even have just a leaning towards authority, you, you start showing them, hey, here's the answers, here's the answers. Jesus did that. Uh, here's something interesting. Nothing accomplished arguing about one's standards of righteousness. In other words, if somebody props himself up, let them prop himself up. No reason to argue, well, you know, you're really not that good. <laughs> See some of you laughing, but seriously, there's no reason to even argue it. Just let them, let them say, affirm it, affirm, yep, according to the society, you're a pretty good person, I got it. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. But it gets down to compared to whom, right? That's why Jesus went to the rich young ruler. Well, what are you comparing yourself to? You know, who's good? Who really is good? Only God's good, right? Standard is God. Um, common analogy, common analogy from their context, right? He speaks into their context. Like, you know, this is what he did with Nicodemus, right? Like Nicodemus, and I already, I kind of highlighted that enough already, but he understood certain things in the Old Testament. And he went there. But he, you're able to do that, and, and that'll tease itself out in lots of settings. But you can do that when you talk to anybody. You know, if somebody's an athlete or somebody's an artist, you can, there's these common analogies in their world that speak to the truths you're trying to speak about. And obedience is prerequisite to further truth. There's something about a person actually making a movement. You're looking for a movement in people. Because, again, you see it in Jesus with the, with the first narrative we looked at, and even this. There's something about this response of a person that's moving, and you look for that. You look for that in life. And the last thing again, as we wrap up, it's always about the person of Jesus. It's always about the person of Jesus. And we'll get into a bunch more of that. We'll talk about strategies and all those things, because I know in the church they've put together, uh, and we'll talk about it in the future, there's a whole study on the Gospel of John, right? JD, that's a number of lessons that you could sit down with somebody, and let, this would be great for Muslims. You wanna talk about who Jesus is? Let's go talk about who Jesus is. I don't want to talk about theology with you. I don't want to talk about all the things we can debate. Let's just talk about who Jesus is. And a person who God is working in will be attracted to Jesus, right? Come follow me. I'll tell you more. Isn't that awesome? All right. That's it today. We're done. 10.15.
And we'll pick up next week with some more of these kinds of things. I hope there was enough notes there and a bunch of thoughts. hope it didn't quite feel like you were drinking out of a fire hydrant, but there's some great stuff there. So you go back to those passages and study them on your own. You'll see lots of great stuff. So anyway, see you in, what, 15 minutes, and we'll worship.